I think one of the one of the problems that a lot of managers have that I have such compassion for is they just get thrown into the deep end. If you're an engineer, you go to school, you learn to be an engineer, and then you become a manager and you get almost no training. It was uh, it was a friend of mine when I first moved here who said in Silicon Valley, management is neither taught nor rewarded. Now, happily, I think that's beginning to change. And and people are really seeing how important it is, how, how important good management is. But it's very hard to teach. That's Kim Scott, co-founder of Candor Inc. and author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Radical Candor. Be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. We all know the behaviors of that terrible boss and can identify the negative impact they have on our ability to grow and thrive. Yet, learning how to be that great manager yourself isn't so easy. I think very often we sort of write off learning management as a learning by doing sort of thing. And the problem with that is when a manager starts to fail, they don't just sink themselves. They drag a whole team of people down with them. So I think that anything we can do to help managers learn more quickly, obviously there's, there's, an, there's an aspect of learning on the job. But the faster we learn, the, the obviously more successful we as managers are, but equally as important, the more successful our teams are. Uh, because a bad boss creates so much misery. So what does it take to be an effective manager that can build the right relationships and move your team forward in a positive way to deliver results? Welcome to the Strategic Momentum Podcast, the show where we share tips, stories, and advice from progressive leaders on how to break through business and career inertia so you can better understand the business of work. I'm your host, Connie Steele. Kim Scott has made it her company's mission to rid the world of bad bosses by helping organizations create BS-free zones at workplaces around the world. Her breadth of experiences have given her an in-depth perspective on the conditions that people need to do their best work. She was a startup founder and CEO, led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick Online Sales and Operations at Google, and then joined Apple to develop and teach a leadership seminar. Further, Kim's been a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, as well as several other tech companies. And what she learned is that it takes being radically candid as a manager, caring personally while challenging directly to create the right momentum. In this episode, Kim dives into the challenges that many bosses face when it comes to guiding their teams effectively and the concepts, applications, and benefits behind the radical candor framework that's intended to help them. Because her goal is to help you develop as a leader and to empower you and your team to do the best work of your lives. Let's start with Kim's career journey and how it led to this concept of radical candor. So I was born and raised, well, I was born in Minneapolis, but raised in Memphis, Tennessee. And one of the things that I found most difficult about becoming a leader was challenging people directly. I was sort of taught since I grew up, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And all of a sudden it was my job to say it. And that was really hard. But I didn't want to lose the kindness that came came along with, with that uh, exhortation not to say anything mean. And for me, 
radical candor was really a solution to something I struggled with early on in my career. So I became a, after college, I, I moved to Moscow and then I went to business school and then I, I wound up starting a software company. That's a sort of short version of a lot of different things that happened. And when I started this software company, it was called Juice. We were about 65 people. And one day I came into the office and somebody, not somebody, 10 people actually sent me the same article from the New York Times about how people would rather have a boss who is a complete asshole, but really competent than a boss who is really nice, but really incompetent. I thought, gosh, are they sending me this because they think I'm a jerk or because they think (laughs) I'm incompetent? And surely those are not my two choices. And this really got me thinking about leadership a lot. And uh, around the time, the startup failed and I wound up getting a job at at Google. And shortly after I joined, I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO of Google about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the room and there was in one corner, Sergey Brin, one of the founders on an elliptical trainer in toe shoes. And there in the other corner was Eric Schmidt, who was CEO at the time, sort of so intent on his email, it was like his brain had been plugged into the machine. And I felt a little bit nervous. How in the world was I supposed to get these people's attention? Absolutely. Yeah, it was a little nerve-wracking. And luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added over the last couple of months, Eric almost fell off his chair. And he said, why did you say? And I repeated the number. That's incredible. Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineers? So I'm feeling like the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe that I'm a genius. And I walked past my boss, who was Cheryl Sandberg, and I'm expecting sort of a high five or a pat on the back. And instead, she says to me, why, why don't you walk back to my office with me? I thought, oh, wow. and then you're like, oh, yeah, something's wow. up. <laughs> I have screwed something up, and I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. And Cheryl began the conversation by telling me about the things that had gone well in the meeting, not in the feedback sandwich sense of the word, but really seeming to mean it. And... Eventually, of course, I was getting impatient because all I wanted to hear about was what I had done to screw up. And eventually, she said to me, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And I sort of made this brush off gesture with my hand because if that was all I had done wrong, who really cared? Uh, I had a tiger by the tail. And Cheryl said, you know, I know this great speech coach. I'm sure that Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this brush-off gesture with my hand. I said, no, I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all those new customers? I don't have time for a speech coach. Yeah, she's like, hint, hint. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not taking the hint. And then she stopped. She looked right at me and she said, I can see when you do that thing with your hand, I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she's got my full attention. And some people might say it was mean of her to say I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career. Because if she hadn't used just those words, and by the way, she wouldn't have used those words with other people on her team who were perhaps a better listener than I was. But if she hadn't used just those words with me, then I 
would not have gone to see the speech coach and I wouldn't have learned that she was not exaggerating. I literally said um every third word. And this was news to me because I had been giving presentations for my entire career. I had raised millions of dollars for two different startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And this really got me to thinking two things, really. One, why had no one told me? It was almost though I'd been walking through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth. And the other thing that really got me thinking was, what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? And I realized in the case of Cheryl, it really boiled down to two things. I knew that she cared about me, not just as an employee, but as a human being. So it was care personally was one thing. And the second thing was that I knew that Cheryl would not fail to challenge me directly when I was making a mistake. I knew she cared about my short-term feelings, but she wasn't going to let her concern about my short-term feelings get in the way of telling me something I needed to know in the long run. So the second thing is really the willingness to challenge directly. And that is what radical candor is. It's that combination of caring personally, of compassion, and challenging directly of candor. So think of radical candor as a new management philosophy, an approach to build these radically candid relationships because the goal is to help you fulfill your responsibility as a boss, to guide your team to achieve results. And guiding your team requires delivering as well as soliciting feedback, which has to be done on a frequent and even on-the-spot basis to help you build the right culture. This desire to help others be a kick-ass boss without losing their humanity is what drove Kim to write her best-selling book and build an executive education company by the same name. The company helps train organizations on how to apply these principles and practices in their workplace so that they have a BS-free work environment. So Radical Candor, which is actually run by Jason Rosoff, he's the, he's the CEO. I'm spending a lot of my time working on a new book, but I do uh, a fair number now of online talks and workshops. And in addition, at Radical Candor, at, at the company, we've partnered with Second City, the improv group in Chicago, and we built an office comedy. <laughs> we co-produced an office comedy. And it really shows what radical candor is and what it isn't and why it's easy for me to say be radically candid, really hard for you to do it. And then in the debriefs from the, from the sitcom, we offer a cheat sheet and a playbook that give people real ways, real reminders, and real ways to practice the skills that are so essential to radical candor. It's It's so easy to say, listen with the intent to understand, but it's really hard to do it. So how can you show you care? How can you challenge directly? We we sort of try to break it down into into steps, into, into things you can really practice. They're drills for being a better human being. That's a pretty innovative way of showing people the how, because as you mentioned before, contextualizing what these concepts may mean may not be obvious to folks. Um, So I love that ability where you can use improv um, and comedy uh, really to show people a completely different way. So I'd love to get into more about being that effective manager, um, one that's really effective in motivating their employees to reach their potential. And unfortunately, that's, that's hard and 
many folks are not good at doing it. So folks leave. What challenges do you feel inhibit bosses from being successful in their roles and responsibilities? And some of those key responsibilities, as you mentioned, the book are giving guidance, building a solid team and delivering results. Yes, I think one of the one of the problems that a lot of managers have that I have such compassion for is they just get thrown into the deep end. If you're an engineer, you go to school, you learn to be an engineer, and then you become a manager and you get almost no training. It was uh, there was a friend of mine when I first moved here who said in Silicon Valley, management is neither taught nor rewarded. Now, happily, I think that's beginning to change. And and people are really seeing how important it is, how, how important good management is. But it's very hard to teach. I think very often we sort of write off learning management as a learning by doing sort of thing. And the problem with that is when a manager starts to fail, they, they're, if they're thrown into the deep end, they don't just sink themselves. They drag a whole team of people down with them. So... I think that anything we can do to help managers learn more quickly, obviously there's there's an there's an aspect of learning on the job. But the faster we learn, the obviously more successful we as managers are. But equally as important, the more successful our teams are. And because a bad boss creates so much misery. I've Absolutely, I've, I've coached a lot of people, and I've seen people develop hives. I've seen people develop insomnia. There's there's evidence that that over a lifetime you're more likely to have a heart attack if you have an abusive boss. So so our mission at Radical Candor is really to rid the world of bad bosses. And and very often the bad bosses are not bad people. They're just people who haven't been trained for the responsibility that they've been given. What do you think are the drivers of those who are bad bosses? Like, why do they become bad? They're not bad people, as you mentioned, but unfortunately, not all of they're them. not. not, not yeah. most of them. There are very true. <laughs> that is there very true. Out there. Uh, but of those who, who, again, they're not bad people, but they are just not effective in motivating their team in the right way and, and, and being able to steer and lead folks to being able to do their best work. Why do you think what happens to them and and triggers sort of these negative behaviors? Well, I think if if you take a look at the core responsibilities for for managers, let's start with feedback. I think that one of the one of the key aspects of feedback is moving past the two things, really. One is the this if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That that kind of training really backs us off on the challenge directly dimension of radical candor. And it's been pounded into our heads for most of us since we learned to speak. So undoing that training is really difficult. And then the other reason why offering feedback is so important and and often not done very well is that uh, if you think about the, the... care personally dimension of radical candor. I mean, very few people start off their careers as bosses saying, oh, I don't really care about other people, so I'm going to be a, a great boss. Like that's not usually the problem that's presenting. Instead, what happens is for most of us, we get our first job and we're 18, 19, 20 years old. We're right at that moment when our personas are beginning to solidify 
but our egos are maximally fragile. And right at that moment, someone comes along and says, be professional. And for an awful lot of people, that gets translated to mean leave your emotions, leave your true identity, leave your humanity, leave everything that's best and most real about you at home and show up at work like some kind of robot. And you can't possibly show that you, that you care personally if you're showing up at work like some kind of robot. So I think undoing the, sort of that training is what makes it so difficult to give good feedback. The, the, tra- the be professional training and, and the if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. So it's really feedback. I think those are the two reasons why offering radically candid feedback is so difficult or compassionately candid feedback is so difficult. There's one of the things that I've done to make it a little bit easier is to give a name to what happens when you fail on one dimension or another. And we all do sort of on a daily basis, really. The ability for managers to deliver feedback in a way that's both kind and clear, specific and sincere is not as easy to do as Kim mentioned. Showing that vulnerability and being able to communicate what you really think when it's not positive isn't what we're taught to do. So let's dive more into this framework to guide your conversations. There are two dimensions of good guidance, caring personally versus not, and challenging directly versus silence. When combined, these dimensions give us four quadrants. Being radically candid is the upper right-hand quadrant. Here, you're caring personally and challenging directly. The other three are obnoxious aggression, bottom right-hand quadrant, manipulative insincerity, bottom left, and finally, ruinous empathy, top left. Kim shares what this looks like in terms of a boss's behavior. So sometimes we do challenge directly. We do remember to tell to give someone some, some critical feedback, but we forget to show that we care. And then, but then you wind up in, in what I call the obnoxious aggression quadrant yes. of feedback. Uh, you, you've, you've just behaved like a jerk. And unfortunately, when we realize we have behaved like a jerk, the instinct for most of us is rather than to move up on the care personally dimension of radical candor, we move in the wrong direction on, on challenge directly. And we say, oh, it doesn't really matter or it's no big deal or we utter the false apology or, or worst of all, we sort of backstab. And this I call manipulative insincerity. And this happens, we, we are all guilty of this from time to time. So that's kind of the hero's journey from obnoxious aggression to manipulative insincerity. And both obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity are sort of, they're fun to talk about, though we talk about them a lot. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of people make the vast majority of mistakes when they do remember to show that they care personally, but they forget to challenge directly. Maybe they're so concerned about not hurting someone's feelings that they fail to tell them something that they'd be better off knowing. And that I call ruinous empathy. And so trying to get clear in your head when you're in the heat of the feedback moment, where you are and sort of which vector to move on using this radical candor framework sort of care personally, challenge directly like a compass to remind you when, when are the times you need to challenge 
more directly. That's when people are not hearing you. And when are the times you need to show that you care personally? And that's usually when someone's getting angry or upset. And, and it's counterintuitive when someone's getting angry or upset. Again, it's our instinct to back away. And instead, you need to step into to the emotions that we often sort of want to avoid both at work and, and at home. As bosses, many of us can relate to being in any one of these quadrants at some point in our careers. And as employees, you have probably experienced these behaviors and types of conversations as well. So to recap, obnoxious aggression is when you criticize someone without taking any time to show you care. Now, ironically, Kim says this is the second best thing to do if you aren't radically candid, only because people know what you think and where they stand. Kim also calls this front stabbing. Manipulative insincerity is when you don't care enough about a person to challenge directly. Think of it as passive-aggressive behavior. Lastly, there's ruinous empathy, and this is the behavior that is actually responsible for the vast amount of management mistakes that Kim's seen in her career. Most people want to avoid creating that uncomfortable tension at work and don't want to be seen as the bad guy. The myth, however, is that By showing you care but not challenging directly, you build a relationship with your employees and then move over to radical candor. The reality isn't the case. Here is a specific example of what ruinous empathy looks like and the impact it has on a team. To illustrate what I mean by ruinous empathy, uh, I'll tell you a story about possibly the worst moment of my career. I had, I was doing a software startup. And I just hired this guy, we'll call him Bob. And I liked Bob a lot. He was smart. He was charming. Uh, he, he He would do stuff like one time we were at a manager offsite. And it was in a period in the, the company's history when we were all really stressed out. It was, we were all really busy. And we were playing sort of one of those endless get-to-know-you games. And nobody really wanted to be doing that at that particular moment. And Bob was the guy who had the courage to say, hey, look, I can tell everybody's really stressed. I don't think this is a great way for us to get to know each other, to bond. I've got an idea. It'll help us get an insight into one another and it'll be really, really fast. Whatever his idea was, if it was fast, we were down with it. And he said, let's just go around the table and confess what candy everyone's parents used when potty training them. Really weird, (laughs) but really fast. Weirder yet, everybody remembered. And then for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So so we liked Bob. I mean, he was a little quirky, but, but he was kind of a, a lighthearted presence in the office. One problem with Bob, one problem. He was doing terrible work. I was so puzzled. I couldn't understand what was going on because he had this incredible resume, this great history of accomplishment, accomplishments. I realized much later that the problem was with Bob was that he was smoking pot in the bathroom four times a day, <laughs> uh, which maybe explained all that candy that he had at all times. <laughs> but I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew is that he was handing me in work and there was shame in his eyes. He knew it wasn't good enough. And I would say something to him like, oh, Bob, you're so smart. You're so awesome. We all love working with you. Maybe you can make it just a little bit better. Of course, he never did. 
And this goes on for 10 months. And by the way, before I describe what happened, let's double click on that. Why did I say this? these sort of banal platitudes? I think part of the reason was genuine ruinous empathy. I really did like Bob and I really didn't want to hurt his feelings. But if I'm honest with myself, part of the reason why I said that was manipulative insincerity. Bob was popular. He was a popular guy in the office. And, and I was afraid that if I told Bob in no uncertain terms that his work wasn't nearly good enough, he would get upset. Maybe he would even start to cry, God forbid. And then everybody would think I was a big, you know what? So the part of me that was worried about my reputation as a leader uh, and that con- when that concern was what was preventing me from telling Bob what he needed to know, that was manipulative insincerity. The part of me that was really worried about Bob's feelings, genuinely worried about Bob's feelings, that was ruinous empathy. But both of those, both of those together were really bad for Bob because here's what happened. After 10 months, inevitably, the, the top performers on my team came to me and said, we can't take this anymore. We're having to redo Bob's work. His, his being late on his deliverables is making us late on our deliverables. It's really demoralizing. And I realized if I didn't fire Bob, I was going to lose all my top performers. And so now I sat down to have a conversation with Bob, which I should have started 10 months previously. And when I finished explaining to him where things stood, he sort of pushed his chair back from the table. He looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question was going around in my head with no good answer, he said to me, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And now I realized I had failed Bob in a lot of different ways. I had failed to solicit feedback from Bob. Maybe, maybe I was doing something that was frustrating him so much. He was forced to toke up in the bathroom three times a day. I don't know because I never asked him. So the first failure was a failure to solicit solicit feedback from Bob. The next failure was a failure to give feedback to Bob, both praise and criticism. The kind of praise I gave him was really just a head fake. And I, I never told Bob when his work wasn't nearly good enough. And then the third failure was a failure to encourage radical candor between other people on the team to create the kind of environment in which everyone would tell Bob what was genuinely good about his work and working with him and also would tell him when he was going off the rails. And because I had failed Bob in all these different ways, just trying to be nice and not wanting to hurt his feelings, I realized that I'm having to fire him as a result. Not so nice after all. But it was too late to save Bob. All I could do in the moment was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again. And that's really why I wrote the book and why I'm talking to you about radical candor right now, because those Bob moments are so painful for everyone. It was painful for me. And of course, it was much worse for Bob, but it was terrible for the whole team. It's really terrible for their morale and terrible for their ability to get things done. And I think a lot of people can 100% relate to that situation. I think everybody who's been a manager has probably had their Bob where they have had an employee that they've cared about personally, 
but are concerned about the direct feedback and how that could impact them because of this mindset of feeling that they may not be able to handle the feedback. Or in general, maybe the culture of the company is one where they're not sure how to deliver because they feel people would be almost too sensitive and not be able to digest that feedback, take that feedback in a positive way. Where in reality, I think many people want feedback. Everybody wants to get better. They want to learn and grow. But I think when you become a manager, there is that fear in yourself that you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings because of the impact, as you had said, not just on potentially that individual's effectiveness, but how will everybody else think of you if you yes. deliver it in a certain way? So, so you care really more about the perception of you and will they think you're a good leader? Because it is about being liked. A lot of managers, it, it is about being liked as part of that ability to lead. Um, yes. And Colin Powell said it very well. He said, leadership is often about being willing to piss people off. <laughs> and and But the, the goal, obviously, you're not intending, you're not trying to piss them off gratuitously or unnecessarily, but you're saying the things that need to be said uh, in a way that shows you care about the person and their performance and their growth, uh, but, but also lets them know when they're making a mistake. And it's, it's really a gift, and it's a gift in one of two ways. Either it's a gift because you're right about what you're saying and you're giving the person an opportunity to fix it, or it's a gift because you're wrong. But only if you tell the person what you think do you give them an opportunity to correct your thinking. So going into these conversations being humble is so important. And and the the most important sort of bit of advice I can give to managers to, to be humble is to start by soliciting feedback. Don't dish it out until after you prove you can take it. Kim reminds us that we have three areas of responsibility as a boss. One, create a culture of guidance through praise and criticism that will help keep everyone moving in the right direction. Two, to understand what motivates each person on your team well enough to avoid burnout, boredom, or keep the team cohesive. And three, drive results collaboratively. So how does being radically candid help us in these areas? What are those benefits and outcomes at the end of the day? Yes, when when you can offer radical candor, it's a simple idea, care personally, challenge directly. When you can do that, you do... Really, I'm going to I'm going to boil it down to two things. You build the best relationships of your career and you help everyone do the best work of their lives. So it is this culture of feedback that you create that helps you build a team on which the right people are in the right roles and they're energized and it helps you all collectively achieve results. So it's really a virtuous cycle. When you can offer the feedback, it helps you build the team great team achieves better results. Uh, when you get when you get great results, it's it becomes easier to praise and criticize one another. And another interesting point that you have made in that book, it's the relationships, not the power that really drive you yes. forward. So yes. when you are aware of how to effectively create the 
right type of relationship with each of your employees because everybody will be a little different. But being able to build that connection will be so important to establishing that foundation and then being able to collectively you know, raise your team to the next level. Yes, absolutely. And, and really important to remember that that people might not just be a little different. They might be very, very different from one another. And so it's really important to remember that radical candor gets measured not at your mouth, but at the other person's ear. So for example, if we go back to that um story at the, at the beginning of this episode, when my boss told me that I was said um too much, she started very gently. And when she could see that I wasn't hearing her, she had to get a little more, a little more direct and then a lot more direct. And so being able to adjust the way you talk for whether the person is hearing you or not, whether the person is emotional or not, don't, don't, don't pretend that emotions don't exist. Whatever you do, just eliminate the phrase, don't take it personally from your vocabulary. But, but really adjust how you're talking to suit the needs of the person you're talking to. Because as you say correctly, everyone's a little bit different or maybe even a lot different. And it's also important culturally. I think that at one point I was, I was managing a team in Israel and another team in Japan. And in Tokyo, radical candor sounded very different from the way it sounded in Tel Aviv, believe me. And in fact, with the team in Japan, I called it polite persistence because polite was a way for them to think about how they showed they cared personally. And persistence was an easier way for that team to think about challenge directly. But if I had called it polite persistence in Israel, the the idea just wouldn't have flown uh, because to them, the way you show you care personally is to challenge directly at the same time. This sort of excessive politeness wouldn't have been embraced in the same way. So it's really about, you know, you're experimenting to some degree with every person to gauge right, what's, what's the right language to use, um, uh, realizing sort of how they're feeling and, and having that sort of feedback loop at every step of the way on an ongoing basis, because it's about developing people more than anything, um, that, that you always have to assess uh, each person and determine what's, what's the right approach there. We have to remember that this radical candor framework reflects behaviors and not personality types. Everyone falls into one of these quadrants at some point in their career. So it's important to not label someone as such. Think of it like a compass to guide conversations to a better place. So two really important things. One is that occasionally I'll go into a meeting and somebody will say, in the spirit of radical candor, and then they'll proceed to act like a jerk. And that is not the spirit of radical candor. So, so um, that's obnoxious aggression. So, so uh, in the second edition of radical candor, I actually really wanted to correct this because it was such a common misperception. A lot right, of- and it was in the show, Silicon Valley, yes. you had mentioned. <laughs> yes, a lot of people were using radical candor as an excuse to behave like total jerks. And so I, I called it, I said, if that's happening in your organization, call it compassionate candor. Don't call it radical candor. The reason why I called it radical candor was because it's such a fundamental and rare thing. I mean, if, if you abstract up what we're talking about, it's love and truth at the same time. Those are very 
fundamental human values, love and truth. So, so that's one thing. I think the other, the other way that radical candor, the framework gets, gets misused is that people use the quadrants. They use obnoxious aggression as a label. And they say, oh, I'm obnoxiously aggressive. And that's not true. But I beg of you, use this framework, not like another, it's not another personality test. It's not another Myers-Briggs test. Use the framework like a compass to help you guide specific conversations with people to a better place. So sometimes, so for example, in, in the um story, with other people on the team, Cheryl would never have said, when you, when you say um every third word, it makes you sound stupid because she wouldn't have needed to. But those were the words she needed to use in order to get through to me. So you want to make sure that you are adjusting for specific conversations with specific people and, and that the, the judgment about whether you have landed in the obnoxious aggression quadrant or the ruinous empathy quadrant there's not an objective measure. It depends on how the other person is responding. So uh, in many ways, I'm, I'm glad you called it the feedback loop because that's exactly the name of the office comedy that we produced for the Second City is you've got to use some sort of improv skills and you've got to experiment with different things you're going to work with different people. And, and you can always adjust. You can always move up higher on the care personally dimension when you need to, and you can always move over more on the challenge directly dimension when you need to. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think what was helpful for me as I was reading your book, it the light bulb started to go off where I started to see how it wasn't that personality type, that cultural judgment, because I think people's instinct initially is always to label something or yes. label a person and, and put you in a box, right? Because they're trying to define um, what that issue may be. but the reality is that that may be just a state or just the, the mode that you may be operating at that moment in time. And you can move between all four quadrants, potentially. It's quite yes. fluid. Yeah, uh, quite, quite, quite quickly, in fact. Right. But I think it, it comes down to the manager's awareness of how they are engaging with their employee or honestly with a team member. Yes. And yes, or I, their boss. I mean, at, it, it goes yes. up, down, and sideways. But if you aren't aware of the fact that this is a very fluid sort of state of being, um, that you're not branded in one quadrant or another, or that the your boss that you have, you're trying to label them because I think everybody sometimes wants to label their boss or their yes. worker as something because it helps them solve or they think it helps them solve. Um, it's not really the right way to look at that. And there can be a lot of you know myths and misconceptions um, to someone's behavior and labeling it at that point in time, which isn't going to be impactful to you know moving initiatives forward. Yes. To be radically candid, you need to practice it up, down, and sideways. And it involves getting that feedback first and making sure you're listening versus dishing it out. But how do you start to actually move in the direction of being radically candid? So I think that I think that one of the things that is really important about radical candor is that there's an order of operations to it. 
So let's start by soliciting it. Before we even get into giving praise and giving criticism, let's start with soliciting criticism. And I'm going to sort of walk you through four steps for soliciting criticism. And by the way, when is a good time to solicit criticism? I think one of the best times to solicit criticism is at the end of a one-on-one meeting. So if you're the boss and you have a one-on-one meeting with an employee, you want you want the employee to own the meeting and to own the agenda. And mostly you're going to talk about what they want to talk about. But save five minutes at the end to solicit feedback. I think one mistake that people make about radical candor uh, and it is they they think that they should offer feedback in a one-on-one meeting. But actually, a one-on-one meeting is a better opportunity to solicit feedback. I'll talk in a moment about when to give it. And basically, the answer is in these impromptu two-minute conversations. Don't save it up for a one-on-one. But do use your one-on-one time to solicit feedback. Another moment when it's very effective to solicit feedback is... Go talk to someone when they are angry with you. And this is counterintuitive because usually when someone's mad at me, I try to avoid them. I don't want to hear Yeah, most people don't want to even go into a moment of conflict. I think most people are conflict averse. Yes, of course. Let's go head on and deal with it. Of course. And so if someone is angry with you, though, they're more likely to tell you what they really think. So if you really want to hear what they think, go ask them when they're mad at you. And don't try to make them mad, just... (laughs) Uh, but but if they are mad, it's a good moment to solicit feedback. So, so what don't do you poke do? the bear, basically. <laughs> don't poke no, the bear no. more. <laughs> no, I mean, again, there's, especially right now, there are enough things causing stress and anger in our lives. So we don't need to artificially create them. Let's just deal with it as it comes. So, so what do you do at the end of your one-on-one or when someone's mad at you? How can you go and ask for feedback? Because if you walk up to that person and you say, do you have any feedback for me? You're wasting your breath. I can already tell you what the answer is. Oh, no, everything's fine. So how can you ask for it? You want to think about the question. You want to think about this in advance. You want to think about the question you want to ask. So the question is, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? At least that's the one that my coach, Fred Kaufman, suggested I use and I adopted it. However, that question is not going to work for everyone. If you walk out of this podcast and go up to someone and you start trying to talk like Kim Scott or Fred Kaufman, it's not going to work so well. So think about what are the words you can imagine actually asking. And if all you do as a result of listening to this podcast is it's one thing, it will have been time really well spent. Write down the question that you're going to use to ask someone for feedback and think about who you're going to ask and when you're going to ask them. And just write it down. So I'll give you a couple of examples of other go-to questions. A friend of mine uh, who was CEO of, of OpenTable, she said, I could never imagine myself asking the question, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work? She said, the question I like to ask is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. So that works too. <laughs> that works too. Andy Grove, when he was the CEO of of Intel, said that the way he got people to tell him the truth was he would wait to the end of a one-on-one, and then he would say, there's one more thing. And he explained to me, this was code at Intel for this is the most important thing. 
when he told me this, I was working at Apple and Steve Jobs always announced the next iPod or whatever. But there's one more thing. And I looked at Andy and I said, did you make the mistake of saying, did you steal that from Steve Jobs? He was immediately offended. He said, no, we both got it from the same place, Columbo, the detective show. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of different places for you to get your go-to question, but figure out how you're going to ask for feedback. And the important thing is that the way you ask needs to show to the other person you genuinely want to hear the answer to the question and that it's important to you that they answer the question. So one, come up with your go-to question. No matter how good your go-to question is though, step number two is something you also have to do because nobody wants to give you feedback, especially if you're their boss. So you've got to embrace the discomfort. For a long time in my career, I thought maybe if I just made people really comfortable, they would tell me the truth. But the opposite is true. You actually have to make them uncomfortable. So the simplest way I know of doing that is just to be silent. Be silent for like six seconds. You cannot imagine how long six seconds is. Almost no one can endure six seconds of silence. So if you can manage to take step number two and embrace the discomfort, remain silent for six seconds, the person will probably tell you something. It may not be like the most profound feedback, but they'll tell you something. So that's good. Now you've dragged this poor soul out on a conversational limb. They never wanted to go on. They've told you something. And... It is vital, it is vital that you respond openly, that you manage your instinct to be defensive because you may feel defensive, even though you just asked for this feedback, you may feel defensive, right? So you need to listen with the intent to understand, not to respond. And then last but not least, so it's good that you don't get defensive. That's good. But the last step is actually to reward the candor. It's not enough not to get defensive. You actually have to reward the candor. If you agree with the feedback, it's pretty simple. You need to fix the problem and then ask the person if you went far enough when you fixed the problem. If you disagree with the feedback, it's a little bit harder because I'm certainly not going to tell you in a podcast on radical candor to pretend you agree when you disagree. So how can you reward feedback that you disagree with? I think one of the most important things that you can do is you can have a conversation with a person about why you disagree. But before you do that, take a moment to identify the 5 or 10% of what they said that you can agree with, just to demonstrate that you're open to the feedback, but you're not defensive. But very often, a good explanation of why you disagree is, an, is a nice reward. Disagreements can actually strengthen relationships if they're conducted with respect. Ignoring what someone tells you never never improved any relationship ever. Well, I could see that by going through you know, these critical steps, it shows that you fundamentally care because you're asking the question in such a way that conveys that you want to hear back from them in a genuine fashion, but you are also reiterating, hopefully well, <laughs> what they're saying. I mean, I basically saying, I heard you. Because if you're able to repeat back what they've conveyed, it means you didn't ignore it. Yes. As you've mentioned, you've 
listened. And if you're saying it back exactly in those words or in those words that do show you've interpreted it correctly, not morphed it into something that's completely out of whack, then you start to build that relationship and then you start to form that level of trust. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. By soliciting criticism first and subsequently rewarding the candor, you are moving towards building a trusted relationship with your direct reports or others that you work with. But then how do you deliver the right balance of praise and criticism to your employees or others? So I think it is so important to focus on the good stuff. You don't want to only criticize. Your job as a leader is really to paint a picture of what's possible. And praise is a much more important tool than criticism for for painting a picture of what's possible. But I think, unfortunately, with with a lot of training, with a lot of feedback training, what happens is they sort of try to boil it down to a formula. So give some praise, then give the criticism, then give the praise. And the feedback result, sandwich. Yes, exactly. The, the infamous feedback sandwich. And nobody buys that. I mean, people see through that immediately. So it's so important that your praise be specific and, and sincere and that your criticism be kind and clear and that there be more, more praise than criticism. There's a lot of there's a lot of studies that have shown that in order in order for your in order for your praise to have meaning and for your criticism to be welcome. Some people say you need to offer twice as much praise as criticism. Other people say five times and other people say seven times. And the problem is that if you try to track this, you might, you know, you can't paint by numbers when you're building a relationship. So you just want to make sure that you're conscious of focusing on the good stuff. And everything I'm about to say applies to both praise and criticism. So when you go into these conversations, and by the way, the best praise and the best criticism I've ever gotten in my career has happened in these impromptu two-minute conversations. You should think of radical candor as sort of like brushing and flossing for your relationships. It's not a root canal. So usually, if you're doing good feedback maintenance, these are conversations that you build in between things. It's really fast and it's free to do, but it does require enormous emotional discipline because as we've already talked about many times, it's our instinct not to do this. So when you go into these two-minute conversations, so important that you are humble. You could be wrong about your assessment of what's good or bad. So don't don't go into it as though you're the arbiter. One of the fastest ways to give really bad praise is to sort of sound patronizing, right? So mm-hmm. you want to be humble. You want to state your intention to be helpful. Again, with both praise and criticism. The one of the really great benefits of specific and sincere praise is that it shows not just the person who did the good thing, but the whole team what to do more of. So so that is important. That is helpful. Your praise should actually be helpful. If it's something you would say to a dog, it's not really that helpful. (laughs) So, So do a good job with praise. 
But your criticism also, you want to make sure that you state your intention to be helpful. You're not telling the person this thing to kick them in the shins or something like that. You're telling the person this thing to help them improve. So you want to be humble. You want to be helpful. You want to offer both praise and criticism immediately. If the purpose of praise is to show people what to do more of and the purpose of criticism is to tell people what to do less of, then why wait? Why wait has a a short half-life. And you want to offer whenever possible, and right now it's almost always impossible, you want to offer the especially criticism, but both praise and criticism in person. So what do we do in our current world where we're only in person with a a small number of people? I was going to ask, how do you do that when much of the situation is where it's virtual? And so you're probably doing a video conference in most situations. If you're doing a video conference, you're already batting above average. And and it shouldn't be a video conference if it's praise, uh, if it's, sorry, if it's criticism, because if it's criticism, you want to do it in private. But use a video call. There's a hierarchy of medium. The reason why in-person communication is so important is because something like 85% of communication is nonverbal. So if you're using a video call and you're doing it synchronously, so two important things. Video offers a lot of texture. You can see people's expression. You can read their body language a little bit. It's not as good as being in person, but you get some fidelity. If you can't do it over video, do it over phone because phone at least is synchronous. You give the person the opportunity to respond and you can hear their tone of voice, how it's going. So you know how to adjust what you're saying. Really, it shouldn't be done over email. Definitely don't give feedback. Don't break up over text. Uh, (laughs) So you want you want to offer this kind of both praise and criticism, but especially criticism criticism in, in, in private, praise in public, and you want to do it synchronously and over video. So that, I think, is really important. And, and, that, and that example that Cheryl had given to you is a great example of where that is criticism and done in a way where she certainly cared personally and that was, you know, she challenged you directly. Yes. And if she hadn't been able to see me making this brush-off gesture with my hand, she wouldn't have been able to know she had to go as far as she did on the challenge directly dimension in order to get through to my fixed goal. So, so I think it's really important to, especially in this time when we're not in the same place at the same time, to be conscious of what you can do over video and, and, and what you don't need to do over video. I think a lot of us uh, are having some... Zoom fatigue. So Zoom in moderation. Right. But, but so sort of think about it in terms of synchronous relationship building and asynchronous efficiency. So what can you, if it's just information, send out the email. If you really need to understand how the person is responding to the information, then set up a, set up a video call. Does that help? Absolutely. That's great, great One insight. last tip on when you're going to give praise and criticism. Don't make it about the person's personality. You want to use the Center for Creative Leadership has situation behavior impact. You want to use their, you want to use some way to make sure that you are commenting on something the person can change and can improve. And it's very difficult to change our fundamental personality attributes. So for example, for the same reason you wouldn't say the problem with you in this job is that you're too stupid to do it. 
it's also bad criticism, bad praise, sorry, to say you're a genius. You don't want you don't want to be too abstract. You want to think about what did the person do? What was what did their work look like? What was the impact of that work? And and then help them do more of it if it's praise or do less of it if it's if it's criticism. Yeah, the whole point is to give the very clear, objective, data-driven feedback versus something that's much more subjective or emotional, which can easily get misinterpreted and then go off the rails. Yeah, so, although, although there, there are, I mean, you do need to occasionally give feedback on somebody's sort of working style. So, so I, I don't want to say, if it is subjective, just cop to it. Say, look, it seems to me that, that you're discouraging the team. And so what can we help you do so that you inspire the team instead of discouraging? Like, we don't want to say you're negative, right? but, but sometimes a person's negativity is really having an impact on their ability to get things done. Absolutely. That's a great point. And then, yes, their work style, which is something in which you can sense and feel because EQ is even now more important than ever, um, given the circumstances that we're working in, that, that you have to be mindful of how that individual might be interacting. And it's just in a very different way. We have to remember that certain communication mediums are fundamentally better to engage in for certain types of feedback than others. That makes a critical difference, particularly given the interesting times we are now in. And be mindful of the criticism you're giving. Frame it based on a situation, the corresponding behavior and resulting impact. It needs to be something that a person can change and improve upon. So how has Kim's definition of career success evolved from her early days in the workforce to now? It's really interesting. I mean, I had kind of an odd uh, end game with my business career. My end game was always to become a writer. <laughs> and I, wow. didn't know, I, I didn't know whether that meant uh, to have enough financial success that I could afford to, to, to quit and just write because I, I wrote, before I wrote Radical Candor, I wrote three unpublished novels, spent a lot of time on them. And so that um, was your side hustle, essentially. Yeah, so my, well, I don't know if it was a side hustle because, uh, because I certainly could not have afforded to, you know, buy even a piece of bubble gum for my kids. On, <laughs> uh, so, but it was, but it was the thing, writing has always been the thing that I've loved to do most. And I think the reason why I love to write is the same reason why I care about management is because what's really interesting to me is thinking about what helps us be both happier and more productive in our lives and at work. And, and for me, the great novels were a great way to explore that. And so I feel incredibly lucky that I've been able to parlay my, my career in tech into a career in writing. And to close, what advice would you tell your younger self? My younger self, I, would, I think the most important piece of advice that I got that I'd like to pass along is I think very often we're told sort of that you have to plan and prepare and everything has to make perfect sense. It doesn't have to make perfect sense. If whatever it is that you're doing in the moment, you use that job to not only, sometimes your job pays the rent and 
there's nothing wrong with a job that pays the rent. I think there's so much talk about passion and, and it can be confusing. But if whatever you're doing, you not only work to, to earn the money that you need to survive, but also put who you are as a person into your work, then you will take a step in the direction of your dreams. And don't give up on those dreams because you really, you really can fulfill them. But don't get discouraged when the thing you're doing today uh, doesn't reflect your dreams. I mean, so, sort of focusing all my energy on improving cost per click was, was very different from being a writer. And yet, as I was building this team to, to build the AdSense business, I was able to pour some of what I really fundamentally care about into into that. And finally, what's the best way listeners can connect with you? Radicalcandor.com is our website and improvisingradicalcandor.com is is the website that tells you more about the office comedy that we've produced and how, how you can laugh and learn at the same time. And you also have a podcast as well too, right? Yes, we do have a podcast. It's been on pause for a while, but we're, we're, we will restart it. It's our goal in 2020 to restart the Radical Candor podcast. Well, thank you so much for your time today and helping to provide deeper context around Radical Candor and fundamentally how to be a more effective boss. Yes, be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. Thank you so much. Thank you. As someone who's had my own share of bad bosses, but also good ones, Kim's stories and concepts in her book, Radical Candor, were so intimately relatable. Like Kim, I learned early on what positive behaviors I wanted to exhibit as a manager to my own teams, as well as those negative ones I didn't want to employ having been a recipient of them. But I often ran into incredibly sticky and tricky situations where I was unsure of how to handle them to get to the outcome I needed for both myself and my employees. It's intimidating, uncomfortable, and you feel unsure of yourself because you haven't been trained. It was definitely trial and error to learn the right approach. And thinking about the best bosses I ever had, of which I still keep in touch with today, they absolutely exhibited radical candor. It was all about showing me they cared on a personal level, while also giving me very specific and candid feedback on how to help me improve. So as a leader, remember that relationships, not power, drive you forward. There is this virtuous cycle between your responsibilities and your relationships. And as Kim states in her book, quote, you strengthen your relationships by learning the best ways to get, give, and encourage guidance by putting the right people and the right roles on your team and achieving results collectively, unquote. Make a habit of soliciting and giving frequent on-the-spot guidance because you have to develop a culture of trust to create those healthy relationships. And the way you go about doing it won't be the same for each person. Everyone will be different, so you can't have a cookie-cutter approach. Don't forget that radical candor gets measured not at your mouth, but at the other person's ear. In the end, by learning to be radically candid, you can be that kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. Thanks for listening to the Strategic Momentum Podcast. To learn more about Kim, her book, and the Radical Candor Framework, check out her website, radicalcandor.com. If you've liked what you heard, please share this podcast with friends and colleagues. 
To get show notes, links, and more tips and advice from this episode, you can visit us at strategicmomentum.co. There, you can contribute your own tips and help us add to the great work and career advice we've collected over the years. We've had some other podcast episodes available on leadership that you also might find compelling. Episode 15, Creating a Culture of Leadership and Engagement Through the Power of Movies with Scott DJ Marino. And episode 17, Create Leadership Momentum by Leading Self with Joni Rufo. Don't forget to follow Strategic Momentum on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can also join the Facebook community by searching Strategic Momentum in Groups. I'm Connie Seal, and you've been listening to the Strategic Momentum Podcast.